episode 165 of the win six podcast i'm your host adam mcgee and joining me as always it's my good friend jordan tresky hello there jordan hello how are you doing okay been a tough week for your shining light jordan your wisconsin herd fortress of solitude yeah I mean, it probably is still your fortress of solitude. That, that was less to do with the results, although that, that didn't hurt anything. But since we last spoke, heard basketball, things have taken a bit of a downturn. We've had a losing week for the Wisconsin herd. We'll get into First, that a little bit more in just a moment. But just let all you fine people listening know, in case you're worried that this is all heard, we'll talk heard. Then we'll talk about the books more specifically about some of the center rumblings that just have started and will inevitably be conversation points among the fan base, if nothing else. And then we'll take a whole host of questions from you, our listeners, in the mailbag. Starting out with the herd, was it was it rough, Jordan? Did you did you take it personally? <laughs> the herd's 0-2 week, following the the brilliance of their season so far. First back-to-back losses in herd history. Yeah. Right. I got an arrow shot through my heart. And the herd are to blame. They give love a bad name. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I just had to fish that out. Um, yeah, it was a tough week. Kind of di- varying entertainment levels of both games. I felt like the Mad Ants game was a weird game because they were kind of... I guess we'll go into game by game basis but it was uh just kind of a i don't know probably the least uh entertaining week of her basketball which is saying something because you know they shot out of the cannon cannon a shot out of the gate what is a cannon <laughs> uh uh to uh you know to an impressive start yeah and i mean I think the most important thing to note with this, and we'll we'll talk more specifically about the games in a moment, is they lost both their games this week, 0-2, but they didn't just lose to any old teams. They yeah. lost to the teams who are currently first and second, respectively, within their conference. The Fort Wayne Mad Ants, they lost their opening game of the season. They've since won eight straight. The Lakeland Magic, they're six and three. Same record as the Herd, so they are in that tie for second, effectively. There's nothing to get too down on, and I mean, in particular, because these are both close losses. The Mad Ants game, I mean, 
they never really threatened to even kind of get over the hump and go and take the lead, go and take the game. But at the same time, they're right there. You know, you're just kind of yeah. a couple of shots at the right time and you fall into a win, I guess, like the Herd have done at times this year, most notably against the Vipers to start the season. So good teams are playing and they definitely held their own again. Obviously, there has been some continued change in the roster as well. Xavier Mumford is back now, so things should settle down a little bit in that regard. I think longer term, that's probably going to be to their advantage, um, unless unless there's some players called up to the NBA level, signing deals in the NBA. You're talking probably February at the earliest when Xavier Mumford could go off to Team USA again before you're seeing any disruption to your roster. And you're, you've got to bet that sooner rather than later, you're also going to have Joe Bombay and Gary Payton too there as well. So the start has been pretty incredible. And what we now know approaching the 10-game mark for the Herd is this is a really, really talented team for this level. And we haven't even got a chance to see them playing with all of that talent yet. I mean, when the rotation is such that you're going to have like three or four guys who could be starters elsewhere coming off the bench, this team can really run off kind of a string of wins later in the season. So it's a pretty interesting team overall. If we didn't know that to start the season, if we had hopes but weren't entirely sure, I think that's what we've learned up to this point. They can grind out wins. They've got good players who are fun to watch. And beyond that, they're just kind of pretty good. They're going to be there with the best of the best. And we'll see over the course of the year, maybe what way call-ups work out that kind of decides exactly what the Herd can do this year in their very first season in existence. Let's start off by looking back on the week that was, though. The Herd visited the Lakeland Magic last Saturday, I want to say that was, quite a while ago. Um, not a particularly heavy schedule for Jordan Brady's team this week. They visited the Magic, and it was another one of those games, not unlike the Mad Ants. It was never really their game. They lost, I think, the first three quarters, if I remember right, and they made a bit of a run back in the fourth had some chances to get a little bit closer, but that ultimately didn't play out. Uh, notable, I guess, in terms of losing that game by five points and comparing that to other recent games and their performance overall, there's a pretty simple thing you can point to for why you lose that game by five points rather than winning it. And that is kind of building upon what we talked about in our last Herd episode. On this occasion, James Young, five of 19 from the field, three of 14 from deep, only 17 points. Worth noting, he did have seven assists, which for James Young, I mean, is like that's like a month's worth of assists in a single game. But those sort of shooting numbers, there are bound to kind of crop up at some time, and they will again with Young. But without the likes of Xavier Mumford to help or Joel Ballon Boy, not really going to cut it. So to to manage with a game like that from your best player, I think it's fair to say to still be within five points was a pretty good effort all round outside of James Young. I mean, really good night for Cliff Alexander. He had 18 points, 12 rebounds, and 9 to 12 from the field. Uh, Jarvis Summers had a nice game off the bench. He had 17 and 5. Otherwise, you know, you're looking at 
relatively low-key contributions. Maybe someone like Cam Oliver you would have hoped to see step up. He was one of ten. So pretty pretty tough game for them against a good team, and yet to have been there with a chance to win, I don't think there's any real cause to be disheartened by losing by five points to the Lakeland Magic. Yeah, it was probably the least... There wasn't like a, a James Young or a Xavier Mumford type, uh, you know, just showing out type game. It was very kind of, as I said, it was just kind of like very run of the mill, not too, even like when they were trying to come back, it wasn't anything. I mean, Cliff Alexander has had, has had a good season and stuff like that, but it was very much like a team effort. It wasn't really like some, you know, as I said before, someone just showing out. So it was, uh, yeah, kind of a, a I guess, <laughs> more normal game in that sense for them. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of just a rough loss, a lot of turnovers as there have been for most of their games so far. So, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, that that's the biggest problem. Uh, just before we started here, we were, we were talking about how you can kind of – you can go through most of the key G League stats, and although in advanced <clears throat> areas offensive – rating defensive rating and obviously net rating as a result of that it's not necessarily showing that they're as good as their record has been same goes for for their differential that is kind of somewhat still heavily weighted by that santa cruz game the only game they've lost where they have been blown out i mean these are their only other losses this week both five point losses but the one area where really notably they have a problem and it's a problem that may not go away over the course of the season is their turnovers they're, I want to say, third in the G League in turnovers per game. They're averaging nearly 20 per game. And even having picked up their assists pretty dramatically of late, that means they're still close to averaging a single assist to a single turnover, which just, I mean, at any level, that's not going to make it particularly easy for you to win a lot of games. So it's a testament to them that they've found ways to come true in spite of that. It's not an issue that's going to go away, though. So... It's one of those things, I think, nights where the herd don't turn the ball over, they'll probably win pretty easily. All the rest of the time, it's about finding something that just gets them over some way, somehow. After that Saturday game, a couple of days off before they return to action on Tuesday, this was the herd's final game at the BMO Harris Bradley Center behind closed doors 153 people this time sneaked in behind those doors according to the herd broadcast the fort wayne mad ants came down with a bus full of people to watch the game so i mean talk about trying to steal home court away from the mad ants you'd wonder it's so early for this team and obviously they haven't played a true home game yet that i'm not ready to proclaim home is going to give them a, this big advantage straight away but there must be something about just playing in front of no people, essentially, that they've done twice now. That is a little bit difficult. It's a little bit challenging. I mean, they did a pretty good job in the Bradley Center of keeping like the in arena sounds piped in. On the broadcast, you feel like it's no different to anything else, aside from the occasional burst of sound. You used to kind of have the organ and the, everything you'd expect from an NBA game in that arena it's just you're missing some of the crowd noise i wonder when they get into their own arena in oshkosh as they're going to do on friday maybe it will just help them from being like a normal game again because this team hasn't found it difficult on the road they're a good road team four and two on the season so far so 
even if it doesn't feel like their own arena yet, just feeling like an actual normal basketball game may help this team out a little bit. On Tuesday, the Mad Ants came in. As I alluded to earlier, they really controlled the game from pretty early on. I mean, the Herd did have a, a strong second quarter, which gave them a, an advantage very slight. Or sorry, they didn't even. They had a strong second quarter, but they still went into halftime behind because they were so thoroughly blown out in the first quarter. It was 38-24 after the first quarter. And really, they had their work cut out to catch up from there. Final kind of nine minutes or so were pretty frustrating for the players because they just couldn't get there. They were so close on a lot of occasions just couldn't find any shot when they got it to five and they got it to six that's the moment where you want to stop and make a tree and the game's on it just didn't happen for them at any time the mad ants as i mentioned have now won eight straight so it's not exactly kind of any real blemish on their record to drop a game to a team like that they also had a really balanced scoring effort Ben Moore, 28 points, 27 for Walter Lemon Jr. and Jared Udoff. 16 for Stefan Hicks, 15 for Daquan Jones, 12 for CJ Fair. It's pretty good overall. Importantly, the Mad Ants had 12 turnovers to 20 from the herd. On the other end, Cliff Alexander was the star. 35 points, 8 rebounds on 15 of 20 from the field. Continuing to look really, really good since coming into actions following his suspension. James Young, 29 points, 8 assists. Look at this guy go. Passing James Young. 6 rebounds as well. <laughs> Good night all round. Shooting percentages, 6 of 12 from 3, which was better. 8 of 19 for the field. Still not quite where he was the week prior to that. But hey, good night overall. Very importantly, Xavier Mumford back, 24 points on 10 of 17 from the field. I think that's a big deal, and on this occasion, Jaquan Lewis had easily his worst game of the season yeah. for the Herd, and I think that really hurt them, because on a night-to-night basis, Mumford and Lewis in the backcourt are going to be a pretty formidable duo, and that's aside from when GP2 finds his way in the mix there. So, some good individual performances all around. The team just never quite got it together, but again, there is encouragement to be taken on that they were just kind of one run at the right time away from going and taking that game. Yeah. I, I thought, I mean, it was definitely Cliff Alexander's best game. I mean, he was <laughs> dunking everything that came his way and hitting a couple shots in the pop-up zone, as Johnny Mack would say. Um, it was good to have Mumford back. Lewis is pretty, pretty awful. Uh, as you said, um, I think there was someone, something else I was going to say about that game. Uh, oh, uh, James Young. Pro, I mean, boxcar wise, it looks fine, but he still was pretty struggling. Obviously, you know, it's going to be tough to keep at a 40 point per game pace, but uh, just his shooting was off a little bit, but eventually found it there. Um, yeah, Mad Ants are really good. They're <laughs> the best team in the G League, if I am not mistaken. Uh, and they certainly showed it last night, or not last night, uh, Tuesday night, where, you know, Walter Lemon with his two different pairs of shoes uh, was, <laughs> was... You need to think about that. You saw, you tweeted, I saw two lights, so I didn't butter. Two different pairs of shoes. That would mean he has four legs, Jordan. Uh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Two I mean, if he wearing... had four legs, I think he'd have been called up to the NBA by now. And he's, he's on the right track as it is. 
four-legged Walter Lemon Jr. He gets yeah, the gold. That would be the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, but no, he was wearing Two one was shoes. like, yeah, one was blue and one was all white. So it was very noticeable. I was like, oh, that's I like his style. Anyway, he was a problem. Jared Utah was hitting shots. He was before coming into the game. He was like on a like close to averaging 50, 40, 90 <laughs> on the season. So he was uh, up to that pace on Tuesday night. And yeah, they're they're a good team. It, it was very noticeable right away, right away uh, as the game started. Yeah, and it's only the South Bay Lakers who can match their record so far in the G League, who are also eight and one. Friday is the big day, Jordan. Friday, the Iowa Wolves are the visitors to the Menominee Nation Arena. First ever heard game in their new home in Oshkosh. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, I would expect plenty of dignitaries on hand, representatives of the books organization as a whole. The word is that it's going to be, if not a sellout, very close to it. There's going to be a pretty sizable crowd. So it would be nice if they got to see some of the some of the better stuff we've seen from the herd, herd at their best, and kind of show the fans in attendance what they've got, why they should continue to come out. The Wolves are not a particularly good team, so the herd should go into that one feeling confident and pretty heavily favored. The Wolves are two and six up to this point in the season. They do have some good individual talents, they just haven't really managed to put anything together as a team just yet. Oh, Jordan was kind Where... of. He was leaning, waiting to get in for quite a while. So he said, I better stop to let Jordan get in, completely unaware that that's what was going to happen. Timberwolves of Iowa. (laughs) Are you excited to see the new arena and see kind of just get the whole feel of what herd basketball is going to be? Because it is strange. We're kind of, we're now used to this team. We've been living with this team for quite a few weeks now. We know what a herd broadcast feels like. We, we're kind of getting into the rhythms and patterns of what herd basketball is. And at the same time, we don't know at all because they haven't had a real home game. We don't know what that's going to be like, what their whole presentation, what they're going to put to that. Because even, okay, the first game the Bradley Center fans were allowed in, but it's still a very different thing than when it's purely their own arena and they have their own ops and everything going on in-game. Yeah, I totally agree. I think... Uh, we've seen a couple, I, I, there's been a couple pictures of, you know, installing the floor, uh, things coming together, but it's going to be a much different proper way to kind of enjoy a Wisconsin herd basketball game at home. Uh, obviously they had the one home game or the, their first home game with, you know, a crowd there, but again, it was still something like it's. The Wisconsin opener is not the proper opener and all that stuff. It's going to be interesting just to see from, you know, see how the, you know, city and uh, ensuing area in the Fox Valley, how they respond to the team and kind of see that from that perspective. I don't know. It's going to be pretty exciting. I think it's just adds another kind of layer into that game, obviously. And uh, it helps too that the Bucks are going to be on their way back from West Coast trip. So they're going to have, who knows who will be there. Maybe a couple of players showed up. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited for it. Yeah, and I think 
as kind of a comparison for the crowd that were at that first game the weekend that was actually open the fans at the bradley center although they did bust up some season ticket holders you've got to think for the most part that's books fans kind of you know the team's touring essentially in milwaukee they're going to drop in and see what this is about where you're going to get a real representation of what you're hoping for on a night-to-night basis which is people from oshkosh from from the fox valleys who you know they're going to be your night-to-night customers. They're going to be your fans in your building, and you want them to kind of connect with the team on a on a different level and for it to become not just this is the Milwaukee Bucks affiliate, but for it to be this is the Wisconsin Herd, Oshkosh's team. So there's going to be a different dynamic that's going to play out. That's obviously going to take time to build, but it's a different feel overall that should be starting to come out of kind of the in arena experience starting on friday night beyond friday the rest of the week the herd will also play two more times before we next speak about them on monday night they will be back on the road they'll head to grand rapids michigan where they'll play the pistons affiliate the grand rapids drive the drive are currently four and eight and following on from that they will return home for their second game at the menominee nation arena Delray 87ers are the visitors. That's the second time the herd have played the 87ers. 87ers have got some victories since the herd last played them, but still are rooted at the bottom of the Eastern Conference, two and eight record overall. So it's a pretty favorable schedule. Two home games, three games against below 500 teams this week for the herd. Hopefully, after a really tough week last week in terms of the quality of opponents they played, they should be able to get back to winning ways and be sitting in a pretty good spot when we look to talk with them again next week. Will Bronson Koenig have a revenge game? Will Shannon Brown get into fisticuffs with Furkan Korkmaz if he's assigned <laughs> to the 87ers? If Shannon Brown's Stay still tuned. on the team. Yeah. yeah. We shall see. Plenty of exciting stuff to watch out for. I also, interestingly enough, I'm trying to think Friday, Monday, Wednesday. Heavy slate. Only, oh no, I was thinking only one game clashing with the books, but I was wrong. Um, only one game not clashing with the books, so they will go up against books basketball quite a lot, which is unfortunate. Alternate nights is probably better for general interest, but hey, definitely Friday is the game where that doesn't occur, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of curious people checking and see what things look like from the new arena in Oshkosh. Shall we move it on to the books, Jordan? We shall. Okay, so it's worth noting we are recording on Thursday afternoon slash evening. So we were recording before the game with the Portland Trailblazers. The reason for that is that game is on very late. I'm not sure if any of you understand how time zones work. Time zones are a problem, though. The books go out west. They're a problem for Jordan at the moment, I would imagine. For all of you listening, that's not even beginning to state how much of a problem they are for me. (laughs) So... Portland post-game podcast was not something that was going to happen. We're almost through this road trip. We'll have one more out west. Uh, I'm trying to think when that one comes. I think it's February or March. Yeah. Something like that. It's late March, I want to say. Right, so a long time away, uh, which is good news for all of us. I think (laughs) unless you live on the west coast, it's good news for everyone. The thing I want to talk about, Rather than talking about something which, you know, could be proven right, wrong, or made irrelevant by the game, is 
a topic that's likely going to be a discussion point around this team for quite a while. It's not a surprise. It's something that everyone could have seen coming. But I think there's some stuff worth talking about in here. Obviously, big news in the NBA of the week is the Memphis Grizzlies firing Dave Fisdale as head coach. And generally, the recent slump the Grizzlies have gone into kind of casting questions over what they're going to do long term. Firing the coach would indicate they're going to, they've made that decision. They're going to stick with the players and say, oh, that was on the coach. They're not the only team in that kind of spot. And there are going to be teams who disappoint and they look to make moves and maybe they look to rebuild and they decide, you know, now's the time for that. And the two teams most often placed in that discussion at the moment are probably the Memphis Grizzlies and the Los Angeles Clippers. LA Clippers really struggling and injuries, most notably now to Blake Griffin, who's going to miss two months, he's projected out, right? Yep. They're bad and they're going to get worse. There's no easy way about that. And they invested a lot of money in players who personally I felt, Jordan, you'll remember this, set them up for this. We weren't all high on the Clippers like you, Jordan. And they're now going to look for a way out. I think it's a sensible thing to do. It's the only real approach if they want to get back to some sort of point where they're a relevant perennial playoff team. I think they're going to have to explore that route. And uh, one of the the names that's come up in that, one of the players who is, I guess, most expected to potentially generate interest or to find his name in those discussions is DeAndre Jordan. In Memphis, likewise, Marcus Gasol's recent rumblings, his contract, everything that's going on there, the question is if they were to rebuild, would they look to move Marcus Gasol? And so we have it that the Bucks have a roster that is pretty well stacked, at least in terms of starters, at four positions. And there's a hole at center. And in this NBA where teams supposedly don't want centers, two of the better centers are going to become available. Zach Lowe, most recent episode of Low Post, doing nothing other than speculating. I should add, this isn't reporting. It's not saying there have been conversations ongoing or deals, so people shouldn't get carried away. But he did talk about the books as a team with expectations to to win, to be really good really soon. He said there's a lot of pressure on Jason Kidd. I guess those things may be more interesting in their own context than what we're about to talk about. Mm -hmm. But one of the things he pointed to on that is, you know, they could be a team if one of these top-class big men was coming to the market, they'd be interested. Jordan, where do you sit on that? Do you see it likely that the books would pursue a top-quality big man? Should they be looking to do that? Uh, No. (laughs) <laughs> not at all uh i very <laughs> we can't escape talking about uh centers even as the team has the least amount of centers <laughs> on the roster in quite some time um yeah I, I i don't know i i i find it interesting i find the reaction to it. i know the guys that locked on bucks talked about it in today's pod thursday thursday's pod for them um and for me like as you said like the stuff around it was more interesting to me just because it wasn't surprising it was kind of confirm you know confirmation of what we kind of felt this year was going to be for you know up for jason kidd and stuff like that and just expectations living up to that but for the kind of throwing the specific trade proposal proposal 
that he threw out, or Zach Lowe threw out there, which is something of DeAndre, first round Chris pick Middleton, and for Mirza Middleton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I felt like said it the wrong was... way around. DeAndre for first round pick Middleton and Mirza. The first way was right too. Um, <laughs> I thought I thought uh, it was. Like, it sounded like just I kind of scrambled it out as nonsense, Jordan. I'm encroaching I, on I your brand. Exactly. Hashtag nonsense wins. Uh, I don't know what that means. I didn't really think of it as a serious proposal. I thought I was just kind of throwing that out there. I, and plus, too, it was kind of jarring because they were kind of going back and forth between talking about DeAndre Jordan and Marcus So I was kind of, are we talking about Gasol here? Are we talking about Jordan here? It was kind of confusing for that aspect. But, of course, in my mind, if you are training for a center, DeAndre Jordan is slightly more desirable just because of age. And even though he does have one year left on his contract, I'm not so sure. He's a player option next year, doesn't he? He's a player option. So, I mean, it's basically this so year. You're, you're giving away stuff. I, I, I'll i get this out there now, Jordan. Because <laughs> I don't know if I can keep it in me any longer. It's an absolute nonsense to think the books would have... Well, to think the books should trade for either DeAndre Jordan or Marcus Gasol. Because anyone who's saying that is just seeing big names. You know, they're seeing names and they're going... Wow, imagine that with the books. I think there's multiple reasons. I don't think either of those guys make sense in any regard. No. DeAndre Jordan, okay, so you're going to give Middleton up. You're getting off Telly's contract, which, as we've mentioned, actually isn't all that bad because after the season, it's then an expiring. So if you're going to move a contract, it's not necessarily the one. If I was putting Middleton, I'd probably put Middleton Delhi on a first. If you're making that deal, I still don't think it's a good deal, but... Telly's contract, which the books are going to be off sooner, isn't the one I'd move. You're going to give that away for a guy who could well walk away in the summer, and literally no player in the NBA has been more proven on flip-flopping on decisions <laughs> than DeAndre Jordan. So even if even if you felt that you know <laughs> he'd resign, oh, he could change his mind. Yeah. And I think <laughs> as Bobby Marks very kind of wisely put out on Twitter a couple of days ago, and I hadn't thought of it. It's, a, it's very, very difficult. I would say near impossible to make a trade for DeAndre Jordan if you're in any NBA team because he doesn't have an agent. So actually right, I forgot about that. actually finding out if he would resign with your team is virtually impossible. If you're finding out, you're asking him directly and you're risking very serious tampering violations. I mean, not that's, that's almost like his advantage in trade negotiations. You think it's to his advantage? Because, oh, I don't well, know. It's his advantage in terms of, like, he can just do what he wants. But yeah, it's not necessarily, there like could be, if he decided he wanted out, if they start to shop him and he's like, okay, this isn't a great team, I want out. It's not all that helpful in that situation because even good teams, places where he might be happy to go and it could be a good situation for him, he might be happy to sign there next summer. If they don't know, they can't make the deal. So it's kind of a weird one. You'd think that if things start to ramp up in terms of, okay, the Clippers are really going to try and move him and do some stuff that he would suddenly hire an agent. Um, I don't want to make any guesses at who that agent might be and what sort of alarm bells it could set off. But hey, that's one obstacle. Beyond that, to give up anything, and in this case, Chris Middleton. To give up Chris Middleton who you'd have at least one more year of at a relatively low price, may want longer term, to bring in DeAndre Jordan. 
is so yeah. dumb. So, so dumb. So he can walk in the summer. Even if he doesn't walk, you're going to pay him a ton of money. And you're looking at what then? You're looking at DeAndre Jordan. Eric Bledsoe will have one more year, which means if you want to keep him, you'll have less money to pay him. You have less money to pay Jabari if you want to sort that this summer. But even if you keep all of that, right? Let's imagine a situation. You're moving Middleton. And what are we looking at? A year down the road, Bledsoe, Snell, Jabari, Yanis, DeAndre Jordan. I remember Brogdon too. Brogdon's going to be a free agent. No, but I'm talking about a potential starting lineup. Oh, well, yeah. So Bledsoe, Snell, Jabari, Yanis, DeAndre Jordan. That would win a championship in the 1960s without a doubt. Unfortunately, there's a thing called the three-point shot now. And any lineup, the books, there's a books bringing DeAndre Jordan and they have Bledsoe and Yanis. Like, what? Why would anyone think that's a good idea? Hey, they somehow they would double their dunk, uh, dunks on ice, which is already pretty high. I don't know if they would. They'd just have multiple guys standing in the paint. <laughs> Everyone standing in the paint. Like, if that lineup I've just said, okay, Jabari showed signs of shooting better last year. Uh, there's a chance, though, that that could be Tony Snell or Brogdon when he subs in, just having to try and space the four for all those guys. It's bizarre. I don't think... <laughs> I can't remember who it was. Maybe... I think it was David Aldridge wrote that. Imagine... You know the defensive capability of that trio. Have you watched the books defensively? I'm not sure there's five players who could solve it because the books problem isn't personnel. It's not that they don't <laughs> have good individual defenders. Bring DeAndre Jordan in does nothing to solve the books defense. So what you would do with that move is kill your offense and still have the same issues defensively and lose a good player to potentially lose another player in the summer and be like, oh, well, at least we got cap space again. Right. That that will be awful. Yeah. Marcus All might be worse. Because as much as I like Marcus All, he is not a young man. He's 33 right now. 32, about to go 33, I think. He is tied into a mega contract that he will be 35 by the time it finishes. And he has a history of injuries. And not insignificant injuries. If I remember correctly, he's had foot injuries. Never a great sign for a big guy. Nope. And a lot of the things he's good at, you could say, okay, well, he's got a three-point shot now. He's always been good from mid-range. He's not necessarily going to lose that. That's true. But you're probably overselling that as, the, I mean, the plus side of having Marcus Gasol. Marcus Gasol was a defensive player of the year, remember? And. Mm-hmm. As he continues to slow, and maybe as his body continues to feel the, the brunt of years spent as a center in the NBA, I'm not quite sure how that would look. And beyond that, something like $25 million for a 35-year-old seems like a prime way to waste away Giannis's prime with the books and make sure he leaves when he becomes an unrestricted free agent. It's a lock. I mean, it's not even... You can't even say, like, Mike Conley is really good. Mike Conley and Marcus All alone have not been enough to really get anywhere in the last couple of years with that Grizzlies team. And they're going to be bad with those guys. Okay, Conley has a pretty pretty significant injury at the moment. He's been out two weeks. He's probably going to miss another three weeks. But there's nothing about Marcus All in his current iteration that says to me, that makes sense. I just feel like it would be a disaster. You're going to give away either Middleton, Jabari, or Brogdon as a part of a deal to bring in 
a guy who is going to be so far past his prime and paid way too much when you hope to win a championship. Beyond both of these guys, the Bucks need to just chill out and not make a trade. <laughs> just don't make a trade. Cool for out. If somebody wants Delhi, which the Cavs might want Delhi, I don't know if you've noticed this, Cavs fans just constantly just eulogize over losing Delhi and yearn over what it's, it would be like if Delhi came back. Well, I mean, it's no different from us with Jared Dudley two years ago or some of the Beasley things I've seen of, of, of since the season started. But they're talking about him backing as a backup, like like he was before. Like, look where the books are. And compared it's to no the, different from Jared Dudley and Michael Beasley. No, but compared to the Cavs' aspirations, books fans yeah. aren't like. Jared Dudley and Michael Beasley, they're the missing pieces right now that get us back over the championship line. Well, yeah, insane. It's complete insanity, the Cavs fans. But hey, if you're listening, Kobe Altman, and I know I've had lots of not-so-good things to say about you, so I'm sure you are. Get on the phone to Mr. Horse, and I'm sure he can see if he can make a deal to bring Delhi home. Um, aside from a deal like that, which is just obviously beneficial, you're not losing a player who's necessarily giving you a lot on the floor. You call that a Kobe assist, by the way, sorry. You're reducing your salary woes. Well, that makes sense. Outside of that, you don't need to go and get a center. You can't have stars at five positions. That might be what some people are trying to make happen here at the books. The Warriors don't even have stars at five positions. Dave Zaza. JaVale. Jordan Bell. You know, it's. I don't think it's feasible to want the center. And I think. I don't know if center is the position you're looking to trade for if you're kind of getting another upgrade. Because it's so specific what you need, like, to, to make that work. I mean, if, if Rudy Gobert is going for, like, next to nothing, well, that's different. He's in his prime. You at least go, he's on one end before he can do this. In a book's context, he still wouldn't make sense. And no. I struggle to think of any centers that I go, that guy in Milwaukee, maybe Stephen Adams, maybe that's just my own biases speaking on that. But even he's paid so much that you just couldn't make sense of that. And I, I don't think this factors in. People are like, okay, DeAndre, would DeAndre Jordan make the books better? And they hear that, and they go, yeah, let's make a deal. Well, fire up the trade machine and take a look at not just how you make that let's deal. Let's get work. Wayne Brady in here. He's the not most one to make a deal. Not just how you make that deal work, but what your cap sheet looks like for the next few years after it happens. Because if people want DeAndre Jordan, and even if he would agree to resign, oh, great. So you've got DeAndre Jordan locked in ahead of Eric Bledsoe, ahead of Chris Middleton, ahead of Malcolm Brogdon, possibly over Jabari Parker. It's like, is is everyone in on DeAndre Jordan possibly being the second option, the second piece, the guy who can't make free throws or score from anywhere outside four feet? I mean, yeah, he'll make a lot of dunks. Good dunker, DeAndre Jordan. Can be a high-impact defensive player, but don't kind of, don't buy too much into that. There's lots of ways where he has shortcomings defensively. I just, neither deal makes sense to me, and I struggle to see a deal for a center that's going to make a whole lot of sense. Plus, John Henson is playing pretty good right now and giving the books a lot of what you think they would need out of a center. Even if Marcus All was younger, if the cap situation worked, if in theory you could just drop Marcus All into the starting lineup, as it is, that's another guy who you want to give the ball to, but you don't have the, the opportunity to do so. Like I, I wrote about 
how the book's shooting has fallen off dramatically since Bledsoe arrived. Part of that is down to spacing, and obviously the floor isn't spaced as well when one of Brogdon or Snell is sitting in favor of Bledsoe, who's not a good three-point shooter. That is also due to the fact that even if you get them all on the floor together, Bledsoe is going to take shots, and he's going to have to get his shots. He's cutting into shots of guys who are going to give you a better offensive feel overall. Like, that matters. It's significant. You can't just go, oh, we need to drop this guy in there, and that will solve it. Marcus all two to three years ago, would have been a dream in Milwaukee. Would have been perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, to build at a different point around a guy of those skills. But you're signing up for uh, Marcus Alda, who's past his best, only likely to regress and going to be paid a crazy amount of money. DeAndre Jordan, it's the opposite. You're signing up for him. He could be gone in six months. Why did you make that deal? You're on the precipice of building something really good. And you just go, yeah, Chris Middleton. We don't need him. We don't need him. We'll just get rid of him. He can play somewhere else next year. Maybe DeAndre Jordan can go and sign with his team and we'll be here going, oh, we've got cap space again and that really matters because Giannis, you know, will be a free agent sooner than we think. It's like, just play what you've got and if there's any change that's going to be made that needs to be made, it's not a personnel change in terms of players on the floor right now. I think it's it's something they made the Bledsoe trade. You've got to give that time to happen. You've decided you want to see what... Eric Bledsoe looks like, at least for this year, you'd imagine next year as well, up until he becomes a free agent. Maybe beyond that, well, see what it looks like. There are good signs, there are good things coming out of it. The negatives that are there aren't necessarily all on him or all on anything else. Don't just keep making trades to fix things, or because a name is there, because all of a sudden you're like the Brooklyn Nets from, oh God, from the Jason Kidd era. And you've just got lots of star names and it makes no sense. And you might have some older guys in there, some guys with injury troubles and they're paid whatever amounts of money. Bucks from <laughs> the earlier parts of John Hammond era. I mean, the difference is always going to be Yanis is there, but everyone is so focused on, well, we've got to do the right things to keep Yanis. Well, then why can't, why can't these things be kind of obviously spotted? Now, there's no really meaningful chatter, but from what I have seen on books, Twitter, there are a lot of people who are like, and get Marcus Gasol, get Marcus Gasol, or get the under Jordan, you get him, and the difference that makes, you're giving up a lot to do that. It's not that simple. It really would be an incredibly short-sighted move. And in the long run, upgrading the talent at the center position doesn't necessarily make you a better team overall, when maybe it's the least important position in the NBA right now. Like, if we, we want to spend a lot of time talking about, oh, Giannis could do it some more time at center, that'd be a good thing to look at. And then what? You're saying, oh, but if you can get the Andre Jordan or Marcus Hall, do that. It's, I don't know. It none of it sits right with me. I think it's something we're going to listen to all season because it's an obvious area of relative weakness. But if the books are in the center game, I'd much rather they get someone who can average two points and two rebounds at the very back of the rotation, so that they have three actual centers on the roster, rather than worrying about trading guys who actually mean something for players who for very different reasons, are going to be equally flawed in terms of their negative effect overall with the books. And they have resources available to acquire a you know rotation-type center more than a star level or you know high-impact, high-value center like a Gasol or Jordan. So, yeah, if they are going to address that eventually... They don't have to, you know, kind of swing for the fences and, you know, even 
uh, empty out their cupboard even a little bit more with the assets that they have available. And plus, too, if you're if they were to ever decide to trade Chris Middleton, I don't feel like they would go older. I feel like they would go younger, even though that sounds crazy to say considering Chris Middleton's 26. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't see it that way. And if they really like DeAndre Jordan and they want him, there's a chance you could get him in a free agent next summer. <laughs> like, they almost had a meeting with him. I, I remember that. That was very exciting briefly, I remember. Um, in the days before Greg Monroe, he was supposedly going to take a meeting with the books and then he changed his mind. But that's if you if you want him. And we have seen this <laughs> definitely as a team that if the books want the guy years ago, they will still want him all those years later after that contract is finished. See Eric Bledsoe. Uh, you know, there's a chance you could get him in free agency. And if you have to then make trades to clear the cap space, you can do them at that time when you go, okay, we've got DeAndre coming. But there's no need right now to be like, oh, let's give up Chris Middleton and maybe we get six months and we can convince him. That'd be a great way to just bring this whole thing down in a hurry. Yeah. Shall we move on to the mailbag, Jordan? Let's. The first question from at Pencil2292. Would we go over the tax to sign any G League or two-way players? That would be a simple no. The books are not going over the tax this year. I think that's been made pretty clear. I think they may in the near future, possibly even next year, be ready to go over the tax, be willing with the new arena for the right player, the right situation. But I think well, it, would, it would really take the right player, right situation to do that. Is that isn't that don't we know who that player is? Sorry. Right? You know they are able to sign him under Yeah, I they I think their first instinct will still be to try and avoid the tax though. As in, they're going to say the other guys on the roster are, you know, we can move on from them. We can get rid of them. So if we end up paying the tax for them, okay, we end up paying the tax for them. But I think the first thing they would try to do is move Mirza, move Delhi, move John Hansen, whatever, you know. And then, and look, I think they may give up picks to do those things, which could ultimately be a lot more costly than the financial cost you'd pay in an extra year of paying the tax. But there is something if it if it's Jabari and it's an extension that you're going over the tax for. There's no way you're kind of seeing your escape from the tax in the coming years very easily, and you're looking to repeater tax, and that becomes very expensive. Like I think with Yanis, the tax has to be inevitable for this ownership group, but they also have to time their run so that it doesn't get to a point where you know you're in repeater tax at the point you really should only be going into the tax that's probably some of the area they'd be trying to weigh up. Definitely not for a 15th guy on a roster are they going to go into the tax, which is essentially what that is. And neither would they have to because the Bledsoe trade saved them some money. So they can, like, for example, as we talked about, they could wave on and sign a guy. Minimum contract. So no is the very simple answer to that one. Um. They wouldn't, and I don't think they have to do that to get that kind of player if they decide to go that route. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we're talking about the re-p-deer tax. Oh, God. From at Clipperholics FS, do you want Doc Rivers? It's another simple question for us to answer. No. 
I did try to find out if they wanted Jason Kidd and they replied they'd take him if they could have Jabari Parker because he fitted in with their injury culture. So I don't know. Uh, there's probably people listening who will happily do that deal, but what? why does that work? Is that a swap for Doc Rivers? I don't know. I think both franchises might just be better <laughs> taking a clean break from some stuff. Maybe my choice of wording is a little poor for the Clippers yeah. to hear. The last thing they need is any more clean breaks. And for uh, Alex, yeah, okay, that's pretty true. For Alex underscore Katie zero two three, did the Bucks play a good defensive game against the Kings, or are the Kings just that bad? Ignoring the Kings being allergic to shooting trees, it felt like we had a ton of steals, thirteen steals to be specific. Uh, the answer to this question is: you will have a better sense by the time you listen to this than we have right now, because the Bucks will have played a not terrible team in the Trailblazers, and we'll see what carries over. I think the most important thing here is the defense has not changed and will not change permanently. And Jason Kidd's kind of made that pretty clear with some comments the last week. Uh, so even as much as anyone on the outside can see, they made an adjustment that worked. There is plenty of reason to think that's not going to be something he's going to encourage the team to stick with long term. I have a specific quote on that I'll bring out in a couple of minutes when we get to another kind of similar related question. I think it was probably both, to be honest. I think it was a good defensive game. And the Kings are bad. Why not both, Jordan? Yeah. <laughs> They're a low assist, low three-point shooting team. So without those, it's really hard to exploit the Bucks' defense in the way that we've come to know and love. They were except... also, also on the second night of a back-to-back having yep. traveled, yeah. not very far, but still traveled home that night and having had the emotional high of beating a Warriors team. So <laughs> there are other factors as well. It, that wasn't even the best version of the Kings I think you could play. Like if you yeah. have peak condition Kings, they are better than that. So, you know, all of that, even the way the book started and Yanis coming out strong, like it wasn't going to take a whole lot to break the Kings and the books had broken them by very early in the second quarter. So I don't know. It's kind of, if the game was closer even for a longer period of time, would the books defense looked as good? Kings might've just quit a little bit. They're a young team. They're still learning. It's a tough one to know. I think it's probably the Kings aren't good and the books did play some good defense, but the longer. Do you want to know, do you want to note something really quick in terms of the defense? Eric Bledsoe, is high up on the hustle leader stats in terms of deflections, close to averaging three deflections a game, 2.8 to be exact. Hmm. So does that mean he's right up there with DeAndre Liggins on the per 36 for that? Because I know Liggins at least was pretty high. Maybe he's fallen off. Liggins had a couple of bad games by his standards. Uh... Liggins is 8 in deflections per 36. 3.9 per 36 minutes. So he's actually ahead of Bledsoe. So he's 3.7 deflections, by the way. <laughs> that, I mean, I don't think very, that's... Very, very small sample size. Yeah, but I don't think that's all for the minimum. All the same. Tom Maker suddenly has burst into the upper echelons of loose balls recovered per 36. 1.9 loose balls recovered per 36 minutes. Giannis is in the top 10 of loose balls recovered per game at 1.4. DeAndre Liggins, though, hustled king. I wrote this piece last week. He has fallen a little bit in terms of the loose balls. Um, still doing okay, but just out of the top 10. 
He is third in charges drawn per 36 minutes, though, and seventh in charges drawn per game. Hustle isn't really the issue, because there are lots of books players kind of dotted across that, which is very interesting, considering some recent comments we've heard from the head coach. Gary Payne, too, uh, is averaging 6.5 contested three-point shots per 36 minutes. No wonder he's making the starting lineup. <laughs> I mean, that, that says itself right there. Oh, God. <laughs> From an axe underscore Kenny 023. Should the Bucks bring Ursanity back to help shore, shore up the offensive rebounding woes? No, absolutely not. <laughs> they don't even need his charges. No, yeah, they have that covered. No, that would be a terrible idea. Could the herd beat the Kings? Also from Alex. No. No. A lot of easy no's this week. They did beat the Bighorns, the, the Kings G League affiliate. They did. It wasn't a great game, if memory serves me correctly. That was the Twin Peaks game. <laughs> it was the Twin Peaks game, so my memory is even not entirely complete in terms of that game. It's deceiving uh, you. So, yeah. From David Dunn 21. I will use my Infinity Gauntlet to fix the Bucks' defense and make it the sixth best defense in the association. No more wild swings and outcomes other than the normal variance of 82 games. But you must keep Jason Kidd and everything else that comes with him. Do we have a deal? <laughs> I'll let you go first, Jordan. Yes or no? Oh. <sighs> so they get to be good they're, they're at the sixth some... best defense in the association. No wild swings and outcomes. Normal variance of 82 games. You still get the Jason Kidd experience. So basically, it would be first season Jason Kidd. First season? Well, look, okay, you're, you're thinking about this. I'll give my answer. Yes. It, do, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter all that much, some of the other stuff. I think you may still reach the point because Jason Kidd is Jason Kidd and there'd be flaws there. We'd say, okay, we need to upgrade. But I do think there's something kind of in the collective psychology of it, things that people may have picked up on. Jason Kidd kind of idiosyncrasies or areas where his team struggles that would never have become an issue if the books had been able to maintain their defensive level from the first year. They're consistently one of the best defensive teams in the NBA. People would make allowances for other things. It's like, Okay, some weird things offensively, not taking enough trees. People uh, do that with Steve Kerr. Rotation. Yeah. If you can if you can be just kind of six was very specific, by the way. I commend yeah. David Dunn on being that strangely specific. I mean not a round number, but not a prime number. number. I mean he, he obviously didn't want to go top five just because that's a that's too easy. But I think yeah. sixth is pretty much top five. So I take that. I mean if this team could just be six in the NBA in defense and not have wild swings. They win 50 games easy. If this team could be six in the NBA completely. <laughs> I mean, that's, um, but, so yeah, it basically would be first season Jason Kidd. And uh, that like, it doesn't mean that there still wouldn't be Jason Kidd isms that would annoy people, but you would be losing less games and having less just kind of, unsightly spells during those games as well that it just you wouldn't feel quite the same way you wouldn't have the snowball effect of what's happened which is every single hole that is there in his coaching is now apparent in a way that as the example you gave 
is never going to happen with Steve Kerr because the Warriors are going to win 60 games minimum. They're generally going to win 70 games. So it's like, well, okay, he's got problems, has he? Well, the team's winning 70 games and we'll win the championship. Who cares? It's like if Kidd could have the Bucks sixth in defense and then you've got Yanis and you've got Bledsoe and you've got the other assets they have who can do things offensively. Yeah, that would work. So I would take it. It doesn't mean you still wouldn't eventually go, okay, we need to just get something more than this. But if you could be a, like a year in, year out, top 10 defense, you've got a really good base for something. Same goes if year in, year out, you could be a top 10 offense. It's like if you have one of those things, well, then you have an identity as a team. And the discussion that we've had lots of times with this books team is they don't have an identity. Kid likes to maintain they have a defensive identity even though their defense can be the worst part of their overall identity. So maybe he's right in that way. Even when it's not positive, the identity is tied to the defense. <laughs> Six best defense. I take that. I, like in that scenario, the coach's name doesn't matter. His face doesn't matter. We're not thinking about it being Jason Kidd. And you just kind of, you'd accept some of the other things because they're just going to win more games. From at Mexicaint. Do you think after the defensive showcase in Sacramento, Jason Kidd and co have finally learned that a switch heavy defense is good for our team? Are there any metrics to validate this? I.e., is there data that supports a switch heavy defensive scheme over trapping? I think of the simplest way of putting this is that there's no scheme in the NBA now or really anytime recently that traps as aggressively as the books that's successful. We don't have to go too much into like, is there is there data that supports that? The evidence is there isn't a good example of a team that's so aggressive in terms of their trapping, so reliant on that particular element. For the other part of the question, have they finally learned that the switch heavy defense is good for the team? Well, let me read you a quote from a Q&A Jason Kidd did with Matt Velasquez of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Uh, it was after the Kings game, right? Before, I think it was actually the day of the game. Before, yeah. The day of the game from Sacramento. Mafalaskis asked, you've used the same aggressive trapping defense since the second half of the season in your year as the coach at the Brooklyn Nets. Have you thought about using a more conservative approach defensively? Why do you believe this is the right way to go? Jason Kidd responded, we have changed the defensive principles. We're switching just like everyone else. When we do switch, we tend to have a hard time guarding the ball. Lent doesn't guard the ball. You have to move your feet. When you look at it, we don't have quick feet. We have Lent, but that doesn't help when you have to guard a quicker guy. And then also being young. Understanding when you start the game, you're preparing for the guy you're going to guard. And in this league, with all the switching that's taking place, you're going to end up on someone else. So, if you, so you have to know everyone on the floor. When you're young, that's impossible. I mean, that's a pretty definitive answer in terms of like, will they just go to a switching scheme? Will we see elements of it may be there for sure, but Jason Kidd thinks it's impossible because the team is young. And they don't have quick feet, which tough act in Tenacton would uh, help in that regard. What I want to add to this is a couple of things. First of all, don't know if he's noticed, but the trapping scheme has clearly proven to be impossible for this young team as well don't think it would likely be any better for them as they get older that would seem kind of counterintuitive so there's a balance there maybe he's got a good point on switching 
but that logic should also be applied to the trapping you know maybe if they have a scheme that is more conservative on the whole but includes elements of trapping elements of switching maybe you've got a winner there the other issue i have with it is the kind of length doesn't guard the ball you have to move your feet uh talking about staying in front of quicker guys and those kind of problems guarding the ball if you're switching well funny he gave these quotes before the king's game because they gave a really good example of the king's game of how those things aren't an issue if you're a long team switching Lent doesn't guard the ball but it prevents you from having to guard the ball as often because as so many people have thrown out there nationally generally in kind of generic pieces about the books their wingspan stretched out covers off this length of the court if you're playing more conservatively and you're switching rather than having hands up necessarily having hands out you're gonna cut off space for guys to drive in a lot of ways you're gonna defend the ball because you're giving less opportunity to kind of create gaps and i think another kind of key fallacy in that if you're talking about it doesn't help you guard the quicker guy maybe i'm wrong maybe you'd see this differently but when i think of that doesn't help to guard a quicker guy you're worried about a quicker guy finding an opening quicker guy blowing by you having that extra kind of few feet of space that to me would be a good thing for this team because that is preferable than having trouble guarding the tree because you've double teamed on someone pretty aggressively and you can't get back. It's like give up layups, give up dunks rather than giving up some of the trees. I think that'd be a good thing. The problem is they give up both in the paint and out on the perimeter. They don't really stop anything. So it's like if you can work with a scheme, it's got to take away the trees. Well then, okay, give up some points in the paint. It's like maybe this is tough in terms of Again, kid wants the perfect defense. If he could just accept there's no such thing, well, then you could say, okay, well, we're going to give up points to the paint, but we're going to stop giving up three pointers. That's really the Celtics. They're the best defense in the league. I believe they have the lowest opponent three point percentage from the corners. So they've basically said. Actually, that might be the Blazers. It was the Celtics up to the other day, anyway, but. Maybe regardless. Maybe actually, still, no, I, I was, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I think you're right. Sorry. Even if, even if you were right, they're, they're currently the number two defense. So we're talking about the number one and two defense. If that was the case, what are they doing? They'd be stopping giving up shots from the corners. That shows something. What's commonly becoming known as the easiest shot in basketball and also the shot that's worth three points, most valuable shot in the game. Take that away and give up points in the paint. Like that's, the Celtics have gone quite a while now, being a good defensive team with outsize necessarily at center. Okay, they've got some different options and they look to counter that when they run Baines and Horford together. But it was so often put out there, you know, Horford, he's a, he should be a power forward because he's not a dominant rim protector. He's not a great rebounder. He's not your old-fashioned center. He's a really good positional defender, though. He's really mobile. And... The Celtics can live with him kind of getting beaten by more physical guys in there sometimes because that's not what loses you games. If you go to the Rockets and Clint Capella beats you inside, that's not a problem. I just kind of find it fascinating. I think in a switching scheme with Lent, how can you not see the advantages of that if you're switching and you're, again, as I said, it, it could be more arms out rather than arms up. You're closing off space. You're closing off passing lanes. That's something we saw in particular against the Kings, as Alex Koenig noted, 13 steals in that game. 
the Bucks are, as it is, already a high steals team. I think they're sixth in the NBA at the moment in steals per game. It's, there are ways where you're in your switching scheme. It's Maybe it's different than what your goal is from when you trap. But there are still real defensive positives that can come out of it. And maybe better suited to the Bucks. I, I personally would feel the Bucks would be better giving up some shots in their scheme in exchange for going in a way that's going to force more turnovers. I don't think the trapping does that as maybe Kid would think it does theoretically because if the Bucks can get Giannis, Bledsoe, Jabari when he's back out in transition, it's a major win. So if you can sit back and you're playing the passing lanes, you're getting your steals that way, and you're getting your steals on the switches, they don't have quick feet. I think the Bucks have quick hands. It's not insignificant, particularly if you're going to be switching and you're going to have kind of multiple screen actions coming at you of guys fighting true. It's those sort of scenarios to me where I think the books are really good at kind of on a handoff, getting a hand in, knocking a ball loose. A lot of the steals against Sacramento were like that. I think that a lot of the things a kid thinks the trapping scheme can give them, he actually could have out of a switching scheme. Just my opinion. I mean, I'm not a Hall of Famer in the NBA, but... I do think there is something apparent to that. And there's something when you look at better defensive teams around the NBA, it's like, I don't know if defense has decided a ball where you need to kind of book all conventional logic right now. If you could be more creative and try something completely different on the offensive end, you know, maybe that's worth exploring. There's a lot of good offensive teams to begin with though. So kind of just doing what you can to contain them and looking to win games on offense. That's a strategy too. But as kid keeps saying, you know, we're not going to win a shootout in spite of the fact that his roster is very well tooled to win shootouts. Yeah, I, I'm a proponent of the Red Rover defense. I, maybe that's not right. Reads a, uh, hands across America defense. There we go. <laughs> okay. The next question from my daddy Batum. With Jabari Parker's upcoming free agency, how much of a contender are the Utah Jazz? Uh, this is a question that came in last week. Um, I came in our non-mailbag pod, and we, we said we'd carry it over, and Eddie kindly sent it in again. And some of the inspiration for it, I'm sure, was the fact that Jabari, when the books were in Utah, was speaking about you know how much he likes Salt Lake City. He obviously has family there. He is a Mormon. He's got strong ties generally. I think when you look at their situation roster-wise, he could certainly be someone who would interest them. Now, obviously, the injuries would be a factor for everyone, but I think they could definitely be a player in the Jabari Stakes. I think they are more likely to be a team he would be interested in going to, but as a restricted free agent, how important is that, really? He also could, in all likelihood, get more money from elsewhere. The Bucks, for that matter. Well, they have the opportunity to offer more. Right. But, I mean, I I think we're probably going to see an offer sheet. I mean, I know that's unheard of in terms of books restricted free agency, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see an offer sheet, see him sign terms, and then it's, well, are they going to match? I think they will match, pretty much regardless of what it is. That's all, all sounds that are coming out of the books suggest that. I think the only way it doesn't happen is if they find some deal that they really love or they move them before then. That is tricky in itself, though. I mean, what do you do that for? It shouldn't be for necessarily the ultra-proven star that we've talked about earlier who's already earning big contracts and is only going to 
decline as the other key parts of your team get better. So that's a tough balance. I think as a kind of as a potential franchise, as a city, like for somewhere for Jabari in his career, could he end up with the Jazz? I think he would be very open to that if things were in a good place in Utah and they're a well-run franchise. So even though they've got challenges at the moment, I, I don't see why that wouldn't be the case. There's probably just other factors that will play in in the more immediate future in Jabari's case. From at real underscore MR Hagedorn. Could structuring the defense to play more pure man and funneling everything towards Henson lurking in the paint be a viable approach? Similar to Larry Sanders' best year in 2013. Seems like it would take advantage of Henson's strengths. Not just Henson, but if you've got Henson and you can have Giannis come across from the weak side, like that's that's really elite level rim protection. It's not something the books utilize, even though it's there and they're starting a lineup every night. Yeah. They had a game, there was a game like that. Oh, they had a but they had a bit of a block party recently. Who was that against? Oh, wait, was that the Grizzlies game? Might have been the, the Grizzlies game. They they threatened briefly. It fell off. I don't think they had any blocks in the kind of latter stages of the fourth quarter, but they did threaten the franchise single game blocks record. I thought they broke it. No, I want to say they had 16 blocks and the record was 18. Oh. I'm open to being proven wrong on that, but that's how I remember it. Um, it would help if I could remember specifically the game, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something um, in my head was saying Pistons. Pistons? I guess there's been two. Well, not the first one. Yeah, not the first one. Mm. I don't know, but I think, like, there's a, from what we just talked about with switching, and then you kind of talk about that and following everything towards the rim. Like, I think, again, it comes back to, you know, there are plays where the trapping works for the books. It's just there's a lot of plays where it goes disastrously wrong, and that's what's going to happen. There's no kind of, oh, well, that went wrong, but it's not that bad. It's like your misses are going to be so bad with the current system. The best, this is a good defensive team in terms of their individual parts. You could build a composite system that isn't just so singularly focused and have a really good defense. I think that's the simple thing. I think it's a simple thing and a frustrating thing. There are a lot of coaches who, in some ways, this is going to sound like, you could probably bring in coaches who are worse coaches than Jason Kidd and see the team perform better defensively. People who don't have the basketball brain that Jason Kidd has, certainly, and see the team perform better defensively because they're just not going to look to do as much. And that's a pretty good approach. And you've got guys who will do a lot as it is by just putting them out there and making sure kind of you give them every opportunity to be in position to make the plays rather than kind of pulling them out of position. So, yeah, I do think that approach could work. I think switching could work. I think some trapping could work. How about build a scheme that's just not about one thing? A scheme that can't just be beaten by opposing teams in one way. Because if your scheme has a bit of everything, if you're just a well-drilled, kind of well-functioning defensive team, then what we stop hearing is, oh, other teams have figured out the book scheme. You don't hear that with everyone. You don't hear, oh... Team X has figured out Team Y's defense. It's like, no, because you can't just figure out their defense because defense is generally adjust. So a more well-rounded approach that gets rid of that, I'd be all for it. From a David Dunn 21. 
How close has Adam come to a Sweeney slash Yanis altercation while side experting? Hmm. Um, I don't know what side you're. I'll, I'll guess that I'm the Sweeney of the situation as the coach. Although one could also say I'm the star, Jordan. I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I'd be far too humble. <laughs> Not very close. Is the answer to this. It's been some things. Of course, there's been some things. Been doing it a while. We cover the books. That means tensions can run high at times. But um, no, no one has ever told me that they would uh, book me up. So not that close. Not yet. Who knows? If everyone continues to keep feeding Jordan's ego, who knows what the future holds? Speaking of which, from at underscore Al Hopper, has Jordan turned down his offer to be the next University of Tennessee head football coach? <laughs> uh, I have not been contacted by it. What's his, I don't even know. This is a weird story. Obviously, it's cross sports, but even me not being a college football fan, uh, I find it very weird. It's a weird I, story. I even know about this. Andrew Snyder was had reason to talk about this to me. And I even know a little bit about this. So that's how much that's crossed over. Me knowing about a college football story. That's why it's really, really gone big, Jordan. <laughs> Lastly, from at Gifu Sandesu. Who would you rather move to get an elite center like DeAndre, Chris, or Jabari? Do we have to move one of them at all? A Robin Lopez type guy will not solve the book's problems, in my opinion. That's correct. No center will solve the book's problems. Nope. Just the problems aren't the center. <laughs> they really aren't. The problem has this season hasn't been John Henson. In fact, the numbers say the opposite. The numbers say John Henson needs help. <laughs> net, net rating leader, John Henson. If you're moving someone to get an elite center, I mean, if you're saying Chris or Jabari, that's, that's tough. There's reasons to go against bowling. Jabari can be much more. Jabari also has the injury concerns. Chris is more solid all round. Chris is going to be older when his next contract comes up than Jabari. It's a, there's a lot of things that can go into either. I think it's tough to kind of in a vacuum analyze that. Like if it's a, you'd rather, which one would you rather move to get an elite center like DeAndre? Neither. Is DeAndre an elite center? What is an elite center? It's Draymond Green when he plays the five. That's the answer in today's NBA. Or Kevin Love in a really good run at the five. It's because you can do much more with that kind of shape on your team. So, and particularly, like DeAndre is a big problem for the Bucs. That kind of guy is not going to make free throws even. It's like, yeah. he's going to bring the Bucs down in areas where they're already bad and maybe they've kind of dealt with some of the issues but hey, let's bring him in and make it worse. I don't can can everyone else not like obviously see just how bad things would be with a Bledsoe, Giannis, DeAndre offense. That's just oh, I'm out. Like that's my eyes, Jordan. You can put two of the very best shooters alongside them. It doesn't make a difference. Two guys, and I think this this is part of the problem the books are having at the moment, is 
if you do something completely insane, which I mean, why would anyone do it? But hey, like put Gary Payton two in a starting lineup, and all of a sudden you've got Bledsoe, Henson, GP two, and Yanis out there together for non-shooters effectively. Okay, Bledsoe can make some shots. Yanis can make some shots. You're not calling them shooters. That's a problem. But hey, it's even a problem when you've got three non-shooters with only two shooters. I think the minimum you want in today's NBA is three shooters. And I made this point again in the piece I wrote about the book's offensive struggles, and I guess their changes since the Bledsoe trade. Think back to where the book started the season from and what their goals were on offense, because you had a essentially a five-out lineup. Like, I mean, the one guy who wasn't a shooter at the start of the season was Yanis. And that was kind of perfectly designed because four guys who can space the floor leaving all of that space for Yanis to exploit. That sounds pretty well taught true. If in the space of a few months, just in chasing kind of big name talent, the books were to go to a place where Yanis is then on a floor with only one floor spacer, but plenty of star names. I mean, it would just be nonsense. I think it's important to note in light of the changing culture of NBA team building, the Warriors didn't win because they had all of these stars. They won and they became stars and they were then able to attract another star. Steph was the guy. That was it. I mean, even before that, those guys were all there and it wasn't a big deal. Andre Iguodala was at one time the biggest star on that team, on that roster. Yeah. Like, you don't just get stars together, throw them together and see it works. That's what happens when things just fall apart. We're seeing some of those struggles. The Thunder, who, I mean, it just blows my mind how they're not getting wins. They're so close nearly every night, don't win. But at the same time, okay, they've just thrown guys together. And as much as I still think they can turn it around, as much as I really, really believed in them only like a month ago, you're seeing that that's a tough strategy. The Cavs, Cavs have turned a corner. They certainly haven't had it easy. Now, the stars that they have chosen are... Definitely post-prime stars more recently, but it's not easy. You can't just kind of throw stuff at the wall and make that work. So just kind of chasing an elite center. Why do the books need an elite center is the question. Like, I think the most obvious answer anyone could give to that is, oh, they're an awful rebounding team. That's not their biggest issue. We don't talk night in and night out about, oh, they're out-rebounded again. That's it. That's what did it. It's like teams can survive in the modern NBA by being bad rebounding teams. Instead of acquiring an elite center, I plead for the Bucks to find their collective center. <laughs> I think they're doing that. I think they're if if Greg Monroe was still here, and obviously you don't keep him for not getting Eric Bledsoe. The Bucks had a really good center rotation. That was part of the problem. Um, you can argue they had too much money committed into it, and that's valid. It's almost still valid, particularly with just two guys there, and one is a very raw ton maker still. But they kind of had a nice range of options. You can't have just marquee guys at all five positions. If you do, your bench is going to be the stuff of nightmares. And I mean, the book's bench is not exactly all that great as it is. So imagine bringing another name in and depleting the bench further. 
I don't know. I, I get it's easy to kind of be blinded by the idea of you think, oh, Showtime kind of Lob City Clippers. Look at how DeAndre works in that team. Imagine him with the books. Bledsoe, Giannis throwing lobs to him. Look at the size. Look what they could do defensively. But that's all very surface level, and it doesn't take much to kind of find pretty significant cracks below that surface. Yeah, we experienced that two years ago. <laughs> right, very true. Jordan, that is it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on SoundCloud, add us on Stitcher, and favor us on TuneIn Radio. We will be back for our next episode on Monday. You can also hear that episode, if you'd prefer, on the Nothing But Net channel on Dash Radio. That's free online digital radio. Our show airs 7 p.m. Central every Monday. As usual, we'll be back with some more Herd, your mailbag, same time next week. Mailbag call goes out on Thursdays if you happen to miss it, so watch out for that. And the podcast goes up on Fridays. Until then, check out mine, Jordan, and the rest of the team's books writing at BehindTheBookPass.com. And we'll be back with you soon. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you.